So Luke chapter 5 and verse 12, as we continue to see this picture of Jesus that we're given in the gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 5, we'll be starting in verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, that he being Jesus, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more the report went out about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Let me uh, pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word together this morning, as we understand this great healing that you worked um, in this leprous man, that we would understand um, the picture of Jesus and your gospel of grace that's given here. That we would understand, Father, that, that your son took our sin and shame and dealt with them at the cross. That we would see that picture, that we would see Jesus in all his glory this morning and that we would rejoice. There are unbelievers here, Father, people who aren't currently looking to you, that you would open their eyes so they'd see the light of the gospel, the good news, the glory of Christ, and believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look, I, I was so struck by this passage this week that as I was writing my sermon, um, I always, one of the things you may have recognized if you've been here long enough is when I write a sermon, I always have an introduction to sort of bring in the point so that we have the point and then we sort of drive at it and go into the text and demonstrate it. But this week I was so struck by the text, so overwhelmed by this picture of Jesus that I just, I just couldn't come to writing an introduction. We're just going to dive right in. So with that said, look with me at verse 12 a little more carefully. While he, Jesus, was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. What, what's interesting about this text is, is so you know in, in what's been going on in Luke, Jesus is out publicly teaching. He, it has been, he's been baptized, anointed by the Father as the Messiah by the Holy Spirit, as the Messiah. He's now been tempted by Satan. Then he comes into his hometown after he's been out doing ministry for a year, comes into his hometown, reads from Isaiah 61, and tells them that all this is fulfilled. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who's come to proclaim liberty to the captives. I'm the one that's come to set the captives free. That's me. I'm the Messiah. I've come to proclaim the favorable year of our Lord. That's the year at which everything will be set right. That's me. And then he turns to the crowd, who's his hometown, who knows him, and says, there are reasons you don't believe. And he deals with their spiritual pride. And they get angry and try to kill him. Jesus then leaves Capernaum and, excuse me, leaves Nazareth and goes out headed to Capernaum. 
and he begins to preach there, and he preaches in surrounding areas. He's gone into synagogues. He's gone into town, but he's never gone somewhere where a leper can approach him because a leper can't go into the city, and a leper can't go into the synagogue. So no leper has ever heard him preach. And he's out and about preaching, and while he was in one of the cities, a leper comes. So what's a man full of leprosy? What is leprosy? Well, today it's commonly called Hansen's disease. It's not generally commonly called leprosy. It's a bacterial disease, bacterial disease that is caused, that, excuse me, that causes sores on the skin. It causes all kinds of bumps and lumps all over the skin. It is contagious, although mildly so, very hard to catch from somebody, and it is, it is treatable now. We have medicines to treat Hansen's disease now. Um, it's a terrible disease, though. Because when the bacteria hits, it causes lumps and bumps all over your body, and then it begins to cause something else. It begins to cause the loss of, of sensory perception, so you, you don't feel things anymore, particularly in your extremities, like your hands and your feet. And so what often happened to a leper is that their limbs became quite mangled because they would damage their fingers and their hands over and over again. They would damage their feet over and over again, and they wouldn't know it, when it was happening because they wouldn't feel it, and so they started losing fingers. Sometimes they'd lose hands or feet. So they would have these bumps all over their face and all over their body. They would lose hands or feet, fingers or toes. Children were most likely to contract it. It's easier for a, children, a child to get this disease than adults and then have it into adulthood. So how was leprosy dealt with in biblical times? I mean, how is leprosy dealt with? Well, Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, which I'm not going to ask you to turn to because it's too much to read this morning, but Leviticus chapter 13 and 14 gives the biblical pattern in, under the law in the nation of Israel as to how they were to deal ceremonially, how they were to deal with leprosy. They didn't have the medicine that we have now to treat it, and they didn't want it to pass around the camp. And so they have detailed instructions on how you handle it. Let me sum up the matter with these verses, give you the sum of how they dealt with it in Leviticus 13, 45 and 46. I just want you to hear this. You don't have to turn there. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes. They shall let the hair, the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his lip. In other words, he has to bring his clothing over his mouth, like this, the upper lip. Cover his upper lip and cry out whenever he gets near people, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. He, his dwelling shall be outside the camp. In other words, he's not supposed to be around people. And whenever people come near he has to yell out, or he comes near them, he has to yell out, unclean, unclean. This man that we're talking about in this passage may have contracted lep leprosy as a child. That's an entirely possible scenario. And thus lived in isolation for years and possibly decades by himself, outside the city, completely humiliated, no longer allowed to be a part of his family, 
not ever experiencing human touch, not able to converse with people, but when people come near, he comes near them only to yell out, unclean, unclean. He may not have had anyone talk to him or touch him for years because he's a leper and he's unclean. And his skin and his hands and his feet were likely horribly disfigured. Or, you know, it's possible also that this man may have contracted as an adult. If he contracted as an adult, he would likely have had a wife and children. I want you to think of that scenario. Contracts this disease and ends up isolated, unable to love or interact with his wife or children for years. In either case, he would have been humiliated, absolutely humiliated in his community and his family. His reputation was gone, gone. He was completely shamed and disgraced, alone and disfigured, put out of the place of God, which is the city, and put out of the people of God because of his uncleanness. He couldn't go to synagogue and hear the word of God. He couldn't go to the temple and participate in the sacrifices that pointed forward to his salvation. Alone, without hope, horribly disfigured, completely shamed, separated. Can you imagine the shame of that and the pain of that? See, leprosy becomes a great picture on the outside of the body of what sin is doing to our soul, doesn't it? It's mangling us and destroying us, causing us to be unclean, shaming us. Isn't that what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden when they sinned? You you know the story. God created them, and they were naked, and they were what? Unashamed. They had no sin for which to be ashamed of. They were unashamed. They were clean and they were holy. And then they sinned. They ate the fruit. And they sinned. And suddenly they saw their nakedness for the first time. And it says they saw their nakedness and they were ashamed. Why? Because they were naked? No, because their nakedness points to the fact that they're sinful and depraved now. Before they were clean and holy. Unashamed. Now, Nothing's covering up what's really going on in their hearts. And they're ashamed. And they hide in bushes, don't they? And they try to cover themselves with fig leaves so that other people can't see their shame. So that the Lord, specifically, can't see their shame. Why? Because they see their sinners. That's why. They see their uncleanness and their guilt and their shame. I I don't know if you've ever experienced shame or disgrace. I I imagine everyone in this room has experienced it in some small way. Some of you in this room have probably experienced it in major ways. And sadly, shame and disgrace can happen, so you're aware, whether you're the one who actually sins to bring the shame and disgrace upon you or whether you're the one who sinned against can't it? 
Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, many children who grow up into adults having been molested as children struggle with major shame. They committed no sin. Sin was committed against them. But inevitably, shame is torturing them in life. Women who are raped. Why is it that a woman, after she's raped, tends to, and most times you hear about it, flee to the shower and try to clean herself the way she does? Because she wants to cleanse the shame from her life. Though she's done nothing wrong, sin's been committed against her. I've talked to men who've committed adultery, and they tell me that they committed adultery the first time. The first time they did it, they went home and felt like they tried to wash themselves in the shower until it was gone. They just couldn't do it because of shame. Some of you, some of you may have been molested or abused or raped. In fact, I guarantee some in this room have been. And though it wasn't your fault, and the perpetrator of it should be the one who's ashamed, it's brought you feelings of being unclean, of being ashamed, of feeling disgraced. Or perhaps your own sin has brought disgrace and shame to your life. Maybe you're so caught up in pornography that it's humiliating to you and you don't want to let anybody know. Or you're caught up in some sort of sexual sin or adultery. Or perhaps you're continually struggling with homosexual sin. And it's brought you this terrible sense of feeling unclean and ashamed. You see, we don't, we don't struggle with leprosy in our culture. But we do in our culture struggle with this sort of shame. There are a lot of other examples I can point to. The point is that sin does this to us all, whether we commit the sin or the sin is committed against us. This leprous man did no wrong that we're aware of. And when it happens, it makes us unclean, ashamed, and disgraced. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to see how Jesus deals with this leper. I want you to see how he deals with this man. And I want you to learn from him how Jesus deals with your shame, your uncleanness, your disgrace. But before we look at Jesus' response to him, I want you to learn a lesson from the leper. So let's look at the leper's faith. I want you to learn a lesson from him. Continuing in verse 12, after the first sentence. And when he saw Jesus... He fell on his face, face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now I want you to imagine this scene. The leper must have been humiliated as he came with his mangled hands and feet, with his face with severe lumps, etc., and sores all over him as he tried to cover himself, and he came through this crowd surrounding Jesus, yelling out, unclean, unclean. And the sea of people began to part so that he could walk through them, and they were looking at him both with fear and with disgust. 
and they're watching this man who's been isolated and alone and ashamed walk through them, doing something he was not supposed to do, and coming up to Jesus, a rabbi, and falling on his face in front of them. Here's this man. And the crowd must have been bewildered. They had to have been thinking, what, what is wrong with this man? He is disgusting. Surely Jesus will cast him out immediately because he is unclean. Jesus can't be near him. Jesus certainly cannot touch him because if Jesus touches him, then Jesus becomes unclean. And the leper falls on his face in front of Jesus and he begs him. And the way that this story is told in Mark, the verb is an active sense in the sense that it's a repetitive begging. It's as if the man is on his face in front of Jesus. This is what he's doing, begging him over and over and over. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. See, the leper recognized who Jesus was, didn't he? And he didn't care what others thought. He had to get to him. He had to get to him. And this man had reached a point of utter bankruptcy and need. He must have been thinking, I don't care what other people think of me. I don't care if they see my shame or my humiliation or my disgrace. I don't care if they think this has been brought on by my own sin or if they think God is judging me. All I care about is that that is Jesus. And he can make me clean. He's the Lord. He can remove my shame. He can remove my disgrace. He can save me. See, I doubt a lot. Of, he had a lot of time to sit and think about what will people think he just knew he had need, and he knew Jesus was his hope. And I guess the question I have for you is, this, is that the point you, you've reached? Have you reached that point? Reach the point of putting yourself on your face, whether it's in front of people or not. Throwing yourself at the feet of Jesus and saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I need you. I have no other hope but you. And not only do I need you and I have no other hope but you, but I know that you are good and you can make me clean. You can remove my disgrace. You can forgive my sin. And what's Jesus' response to him? I want you to imagine this scene as this man is crying out, as the crowd is in utter dismay. And if look at verse 13. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. I, I want you to consider the magnitude of Jesus' response. He touched him. In the Greek, it literally says he took hold of him. Can you, can you imagine this scene? The crowd sees this leper on the ground crying out for Jesus to heal him and make him clean. 
and they're appalled. They have to wonder if Jesus is going to tell this unclean man to get back to his place. See, it's wrong for Jesus to be near him, and touching him was completely forbidden, as Jesus would then be considered unclean as well. Further, they considered healing leprosy as an act as impossible as raising the dead. So what can Jesus really do about it anyway? And imagine the scene as Jesus utterly shocks the crowd as he has compassion on the man who is on his face, a mangled wreck, unclean, crying out, begging him, and Jesus reaches down and takes hold of him. And he says to him, I will be clean. Be clean. You guys remember when Magic Johnson contracted HIV? You may not be old enough, some of you. I remember it. I was 18 years old. And I remember because we were all scared to death about what the HIV virus was. And I remember he he had to retire from playing in the NBA. If you don't know who he is, he was one of the greatest basketball players in history played in the National Basketball Association, contracted HIV or AIDS, um, which is what it becomes. And I remember that he had to retire from basketball and couldn't play. And I remember the first time, I don't know if you guys remember this, the first time he came back and tried to play a game. And there was all this fervor about this issue. And other players were afraid to touch him. They're afraid to touch him. They're afraid of what they might get from him. Can you imagine the humiliation he faced? The shame? That's this scene. People are afraid to touch this man because of the uncleanness. And Jesus reaches down and takes hold of him. He says, I will be clean. And the man is clean. The man's fingers and hands are restored. His feet, toes are restored. The leprosy leaves him, and he's clean. See, Jesus took hold of him and did the impossible, didn't he? He cleansed him. He had to have been stunned. Can you imagine being a leper? He had to have been stunned when he's laying there, and he feels Jesus reach down and grab a hold of him. He hasn't had anybody touch him in years. And Jesus grabs hold of him. It's a picture of the gospel, isn't it? Just a small picture of the gospel, but it's a picture. Jesus, the holy son of God, gave up his majesty to walk among an earth full of spiritual lepers. He took our shame and our disgrace and our sin upon himself by going to the cross outside of the camp, as Hebrews tells us, like an unclean sinner. Though he himself was sinless, holy, and undefiled, he paid our penalty. He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And in doing so, in doing so, he could say to us, look to me and you'll be saved. Look to me and you'll be clean. Look to me and you'll have no more guilt and no more shame and no more disgrace. See, I have taken that from you. 
I have put it on to me. Just like I took the shame of that leper and his uncleanness and put it onto myself and gave him cleanness and honor and life, so I have taken the shame and disgrace of your sin upon myself. And if you look to me, I will give you honor and life and grace. See, Jesus is saying to you, if you call out to me, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He is saying, I long to reach down and take hold of you and say, I will be clean. See, but the picture goes further than this because there's something I don't want you to miss. Jesus doesn't stop here. He carries the picture forward. Look at verse 14. And he charged him, Jesus tells the leper, to tell no one. Why? Because Jesus recognizes, as we'll see in a little bit, that people start gathering to him for the wrong reason. They want to deal with the outside of the cup, but they don't want to clean the inside of the cup. They want the healing, they want this, but they don't want to deal with the spiritual issues. They want a Messiah for all the wrong reasons. So he tells them, don't, don't go tell anybody. Of course, the leper doesn't listen, which is to be expected, right? He's got to tell everyone. But he does say, go. Go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. What, what's that about? I mean, why does Jesus decide to tell him to do this? Why, why does he need to go to the priest and make an offering for his cleansing as Moses commanded as a proof to them? And in Leviticus 14, one of the things that happened is if you were a leper and you thought that now you were clean, that the disease had left you, you were required to go tell a priest. And the priest would check you to see if you were healed and if you were clean. That's what happened. That was the practice. And so it had to be proven to the community through the testimony of the priest that you were in fact healed and clean now. And what they would do is they would gather together if a man had been cleaned, and first he would bring an offering, and there would be a blood sacrifice pointing forward to the Messiah, and you would be sprinkled with that blood pointing back to the, Messiah, the fact that the blood of the Messiah would cleanse you and wash you clean. So they would have the blood sacrifice showing that he had been cleansed and washed clean. And then what they would do is, is they would actually um, take and they would shave his body completely. I'm talking his hair, his eyebrows, everything. Like, why would anyone want to have their eyebrows shaved, right? There's a reason for it. They were shaving you completely because what they were saying is they were in, reintroducing you to the community like a newborn baby. Say, so look, he's been reborn. He's starting fresh. Do you see the picture there? Shave you down. Your, your honor is being returned to you. You're starting over in the community. The shame and disgrace and all that's gone. You're newborn. And then what they would do is they would take blood and they would put the blood from the sacrifice on their ear, which, which meant that now they hear the voice of God. They're hearing him. And they would put blood on their hands why would they put blood on their hands? Because their hands were mangled and now they were clean and they could serve God. And they would put blood on their mangled feet which are now healed. 
And they would put it on their feet, pointing out that now this man walks in the way of the Lord. And he's being presented to the community as a new man. So what Jesus is saying to him is, I want you to get treated as a new man. And I want your honor to be restored to you. See, Jesus is telling him, not only are you clean, but your honor is being restored. You're a new creation. What a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's what Jesus does for us. If any man is in Christ, not only is he forgiven, not only is he washed clean, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Jesus went outside the camp and took our, humili- our, our, excuse me, our humiliation and our shame and our guilt upon himself at the cross so that we could get back in the camp, back in the people of God, back in the place of God, through him, through looking to him, cleansed and renewed and honored. What a gracious, gracious Savior. Look down at verse 15, because Jesus then withdraws. And 16. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad. You can imagine. A leper is cleansed. The report gets out. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Notice that word healed, not cleansed anymore, just healed. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. See, why does Jesus withdraw when all these crowds of sick people are flocking to him? Doesn't he have a heart? I mean, doesn't he care about them? Yes, he does. But he knows that they're coming for the wrong reason. They're wanting the outside, like I said earlier, of the cup cleaned. But they don't want to come to have the inside dealt with. See, the leper doesn't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, if you will, you can heal me. But if you will, you can make me clean. What is a leper obsessed with? He's obsessed with the fact that he's been humiliated and put out of the people of God and put away from the Lord that he's unclean. Healing is what he wanted for sure, but more than that, so he would be clean. These people just want to be healed. See, they're becoming because they want a better life that they think Jesus can give them. But they don't want Jesus. So he pulls away to pray. Pulls away. And he's likely begging his father to open their eyes so they see the truth. Draw my sheep to me. Give them eyes to hear. I mean, excuse me, eyes to see and ears to hear. I'm sure he's praying for other things as well, but that has to be a part of his prayer. We see it again and again. I wonder how many people come to church. How many people come to church because they want something from Jesus, but they don't want him? 
I mean, they want immediate problems to be taken care of. I need my marriage to be healed. I, I don't like my husband anymore. I need you to fix that for me. They want all kinds of things that are right in front of them dealt with in this life, but they don't want their sin forgiven. They don't want to look to the Lord for salvation and for life in Him. They just want benefits for the here and now. See, Sovereign Grace has had a lot of success as a church plant thus far. We have. I mean, we're not booming with thousands of people. But we've seen people saved, we've seen people's lives transformed by the gospel. That's success. And I think the question the elders of this church need to continue to struggle with as we continue to see growth is why are people coming here? Why? Why do they come here? See, are you coming because you think we can heal some infirmity in your life? In other words, because we can give you maybe a better marriage or a better family or better principles for living, or you're becoming because you want to see Jesus in his word. See, that's the question we have to ask. See, I always ask people, um, both that come to Sovereign Grace and that go to other churches, I always ask this question, why did, you, why did you come to Sovereign Grace? If you ever come to a pastor's coffee or a membership class, you'll know I'm going to ask, why did you come to Sovereign Grace? And I just want to hear what the general consensus of the answer is. Why do you come here? Why are you continuing to be interested to be here? I also ask people who attend other churches, oh, why, do you, why did you choose that church? I mean, I'm not going to criticize it. I'm just gonna, I just want to hear why, why they chose the church because I think it's interesting to hear why people choose to worship where they do. So I ask this question again and again. And, and, and here's what I generally hear from other churches. Not all of them, but when I ask this question, I generally hear from Christians this. I love the children's program. We love the children's program. It's great. We love the music. It's incredible. The pastor's messages are really practical for my daily life. It's the general answers I hear. I'll be grieved. Let me hear this. I'll let you to hear this. I will be grieved if that's the basic answer I ever hear from this church. If that's the general reason people are giving me why they come here, if I hear that repeatedly, predominantly, great children's ministry. It's good, I hope so. Great music. Great, I'm glad to hear that. Your messages are practical. Great. Those aren't bad things. We hope those things are true. But if that's why you're here, then... then then we'll have to repent as elders to figure out what we're doing wrong and where we need to withdraw and pray. See, my desire is to hear from people, I'm here because this church shows me Jesus. That's why I'm here. You don't spend all your time pointing to me to how to fix my day. You tell me about my eternal hope in Jesus. That's why I'm here. See, that means our church has to, at times, withdraw from activities that pull in crowds for the wrong reasons and pray that God will work in people's hearts and minds to look to Jesus. See, that's what we intend to do, just so you're clear. That's what we intend to do. This is why we will always be pretty basic, pretty bread and butter, 
No horse and pony show. You won't ever see me doing any stunts here. None. We're going to preach the Word and we're going to pray. That's what we're going to do. We're going to preach the Word and we're going to pray. Because I think when you see Jesus for who He is in the Scripture like a text like today, you can't help but want to see more of Him and hear more of Him. And if you want anything else, and that's why you're here, then we're not doing our job, and God needs to work radically in you because you're here for the wrong reason. We need to focus on that. So Jason, the other pastor, and I are committed to being experts at two things. We're committed to being experts at preaching the Word and at praying. And preaching the Word, whether that's through the way we counsel you individually by pointing you to the Word of God, whether that's the way we interact with you in small groups by pointing you to the Word of God, whether that's by the way we come to you from the pulpit, whether that's by the kind of songs we present to you, whether that's the kind of curriculum we teach in our children's ministry, it will always preach the Word. Period. And we will always be experts, that's our other desire, at prayer. Those two things. I told Jay, until we do those two things flawlessly, infallibly, perfectly, we don't have time for anything else. Which means we're never going to do anything else. And the reason is because we want you to see Jesus. And the only way you're going to see him is when he, by the power of his Holy Spirit, opens your eyes, breathes life into your soul. The only way you're going to hear him is when he opens your ears and when we preach the word to you. See, we want you to see, we want you to see the one who takes hold of you. The one who takes hold of you and says to you, I will be clean. I love you. You're forgiven for your sins. I've taken your shame. You're a new creation. We want you to see him with us. And we want you to sing with us. We want you to sing like the hymn, Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. For Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he, he, Jesus, washed it white as snow. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask this morning that as we, as a church, look to your word preached and look to your word visibly portrayed in communion, Portrayed in communion, Father, we pray that you would, you would help us to see Jesus for who he is, to trust in him, to be rejoicing that he's taken our shame and our guilt, our sin upon himself. And he's made us clean. And he's given us honor and life and grace. Not because of anything we have done, but because he did that. And that we would want him that we'd want to see him, hunger for him, desire to hear his word proclaimed so we can see him ever 
more clearly in it. Father, we pray for those who don't know you right now, those who don't believe. We pray you would turn them to you. You'd breathe life into their dead souls and they would see Jesus in his beauty and grace and they would desire him. They would look to him and be saved. Pray that you would do that work in them, Father. Open their eyes to see the light of the good news of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.